Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of the Crackstats podcast. Our guest is Marie Lewis, a politics, literature and football writer, as well as a professional photographer. You can find her work at www.mariclewis.com or at Lewis on Twitter. The topic today is Trent Alexander-Arnold and toxic fan bases on social media. Please send us your thoughts on Twitter. Don't forget to tag us and use the hashtag CrackStatsPodcast. Before we start, we would like to thank immensely the CrackStats patrons, without whom there would be no website nor this podcast. Now, I'll pass the mic to Steven and Marie to crack on with this podcast. Hi, and welcome to another Crack Stats podcast. Uh, today, we welcome back uh, Mary Lewis. Um, she was with us on the first episode when we talked about Jeannie Wijnaldum. Um, today, we're going to talk about a number of things. Um, Mary, welcome back. Thanks for having me again. Um, so let's get started right away on uh, Liverpool's transfer window. I actually didn't want to talk about this, but um, it's been like three weeks that it's closed and the season's going and we're doing well. We've got like 13 points from 15. Um, beat Milan in the first game in the Champions League, and yet it, it still dominates literally everything I read on Twitter, and I don't understand why. Um, your thoughts on it? Um, I mean, I'm with you there. I really don't like the transfer window generally. Um, I know for many fans, it's just a lot of fun because it's, it's theorizing, it's who are we getting in, who's going away, that sort of thing, and it is quite fun on that side of things. I just... I don't really like engaging with things that I cannot possibly have enough information to make any good points about, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and, and then that's, there's sort of the tie-in of, we're never going to just be happy with what we have, regardless of how good it is. So there's sort of this inherent negativity around it. Um, and there's also such a pure, like, it's either great on one end or really, really terrible on the other. Um, and that, so we can't actually have conversations about what we think about Liverpool's transfer strategy. It always has to be this window and it's either chaos and everything's burning down or everything's absolutely fine and we don't need to talk about it. And it's a bit frustrating, um, even coming from the standpoint of I'd rather not talk about it all that much anyway. Yeah, it's, it's kind of weird because when I when I grew up as a kid, um, there was no I think there was a transfer window at that point, but there just there wasn't this obsession over transfers like the, the first I actually knew um often that teams had uh, changed players was whenever it appeared in like fantasy football and in, in the newspaper at the start of the season there was like a, a I think it was a Belfast Telegraph something and, and they'd have a list of all the players that had changed clubs and and I would go through it just to work out who'd signed for who and it was like oh that's interesting but there was never like it, it, it's it's like three months now of solid stress for, for everyone and I don't understand I don't understand what people get out of it. And I understand why you would want your team to sign new players, but I don't understand like um, the obsessive nature over the, the it's the extremes that it's either utter doom if we don't sign this player or it's obscene joy if you sign this player. And this season we've sort of like Liverpool not signing anybody after Canary and Manchester United signing Ronaldo they didn't really seem to need and they needed other things but it didn't matter because it's Ronaldo and it was just like I just don't understand it yeah it's I also think just from the outset we as a fan base tend to often forget that it's a lot harder to add to a team that's very 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 good than it is to a team that has very clear gaps um so if you're looking at Manchester City's transfer business for instance um, there are arguments that buying Grealish was a bad idea, but frankly, I, it makes a lot of sense to me because uh, Mares and De Bruyne are getting up in years. And so that is succession planning, just expensive succession planning, and mm -hmm. they can afford expensive succession planning. So it's fine. And they were very clearly looking for a striker, which they also needed uh, a weird stopgap striker, but you have to assume they're probably after Haaland when he can go. Um, so that made a lot of sense. But people getting really up in arms about things like Manchester United going for Ronaldo when they desperately need other positions is a bit weird to me um, because we are not really looking to fill a pure gap in the squad. And that's always going to be harder to buy for. 
um, leaving aside any sort of money issues as it stands, but you're looking for someone who probably isn't going to be starting most of the games. And you're looking for someone who you think you could develop into something after one of our main fellas stops wanting to play every single game. Um, and that's a, quite a bit harder than just going after an Mbappe or something like that, which is never what we were going to do anyway. Yeah. And if you look at whenever we started this whole process with, with Jurgen Klopp, um, if you look at the players that he needed to replace and improve upon, it's a lot easier to replace and improve upon uh, Christian Banteke or Alberto Moreno or um, uh, Colo Torre. Um, it's really easy to replace those guys because um, there's like a, a big market there of players that are all younger and better than those guys. But trying to replace like a Salah or a Sadio Mane, that, that's ridiculous. That's you're having to like a very specific, very short list of players that you can go for. And it's a case of, maybe it's a case of waiting until the right players available and, and not just going down a list of players until you get the point where the quality so far away from where you started, you think that's nah, not going to replace him. Um, I, I thought it was very interesting when we got Jada because he's again falls in that category of Mane and Salah of people that um, people didn't really rate him as a top player. Um, people probably didn't even see him as a high-end product player, even though he had good underlying numbers. But um, it, it's just someone that maybe the fan base wouldn't have picked automatically, and there was a lot of detracting voices against him. But he's exactly what we needed. And and maybe it's a case of, again, just trusting the people that do recruitment at uh, Liverpool, that they actually know what they're doing. They, they don't seem to like... We, haven't, we don't make any mistakes. Our, our mistakes tend to be being cautious. Um, and it happened with Van Dijk as well. It was like, we need a defender. And then Van Dijk fell through. It was like, well, we'll still need a defender. And they were like, no, we'll just wait for Van Dijk. And in hindsight, that's definitely the right call. But at the time, it doesn't feel that way. It was like, well, no, we still need a defender. We're still using guys that aren't good enough. Um, and, and that's interesting for me because it, it's, it just comes down to almost belief, I guess. You either believe in the people doing their jobs that they know what they're doing, even if they're not going to tell you what they're going to do to give you comfort. And I think a lot of people just can't do that. Yeah. And I look, the one thing that does worry me is COVID finances. Um, I'm not going to spend 20 minutes talking about the Swiss ramble thread or what have you, but everyone should have read the Swiss ramble thread. Um, and I do have some concerns about what the long-term planning or what's happened to our long-term planning given the uncertainty and lower amounts of money that we frankly have because of COVID. Mm -hmm. um, because, not because I don't think they can cope with it in a smart way, just like they cope with other challenges, but because as Klopp has said, we're facing against other teams who aren't sort of hamstrung by that market in the same way. Um, we're, we're facing teams who are just gonna spend as though COVID isn't really a thing. Um, that's a bit unfortunate. Um, and it mainly concerns me because I think we'll probably end up being fine. I do feel a little bit of sadness knowing that we probably would be in a lot healthier and a lot better or a lot stronger place without a pandemic, but that's true of pretty much every like real industry in the world. And I think looking at Liverpool as a realistic function within the system makes a lot more sense than sort of wishing with divorce from everything else that we could just spend like a Manchester city or a Chelsea. Yeah. And the, the other thing I was thinking about the COVID finances was um, we're looking at what's happening to say Barcelona at the moment. And the warning signs were there for a long time with Barcelona that they needed to sort out their, their money situation before COVID came along. And this was, this was being talked about and they never did. And it, it's that thing of, trying to make short-term decisions, which are just going to sneak up on you in the long term. And I think with the COVID situation, us not taking out loans to buy players and, and sitting on our money, I guess, and, and making sure that we can cover all our in-house costs without having to get uh, into financial trouble with it might actually help us in the long run. Because if, if everyone else is, is taking out loans and going to have debt hanging over them, that's... I mean, you take debt for two years and you pay it back for 10 typically. So it might be that we're in a better situation in a year or two years time than a lot of our competitors who have taken on a lot of debt to cover costs and keep buying players and trying to basically just keep up with Manchester City and, and PSG, I guess. Um, and we haven't done that. We've, we've been a lot more careful. And it, 
I'm very curious how the market works out in maybe like a year or two. Um, because if we're planning on our, doing our major spending in a year or two, because we're not doing it now, are we banking on the fact that the market's going to change in the future and be a lot better for us? Because there's a limit to how many players PSG and Manchester City can buy. And ultimately, if everyone else is ending up low on money as a result of the way the market is, teams have to lower their prices if they want to sell players without them just running down their contracts or if they want to buy players of their own. And so I wonder if that's our whole strategy is to basically, it's almost like wait and see, because spending money right now would be just an excessive amount of risk for the people in charge of the club who said when they took over, we will never load debt on this club to buy players again. And being true to that word now seems like it's wrong, I guess, for some people because the circumstances changed. Yeah, I think, I mean, I'm from, I come from the position of the way that the club is run on that side of things is a very good thing. Um, I think I've mentioned before that, I mean, obviously the amount of money in the sport is a problem full stop. Um, I don't necessarily, I don't mean to frame this as FSG are good billionaires. They get our values. I'm not saying that at all, uh, nor am I ignoring any other mistakes that I've made or that they have made, but specifically in terms of player transfers and how they have treated the club um, around debt. I think they have been very good owners. Um, I do think what you're saying makes a lot of sense in terms of what they're probably planning to do moving forward. Um, I don't think this whole idea that we're just never buying a player anymore um, is true. I do think that it makes a lot more sense that we're waiting for the market to settle down a bit um, for us being able to sell as much as us buying. Um, because right now we're finding it very difficult to shift certain players that are kind of in that mid range. Mm -hmm. So they're not players that are really wanted by the teams that have a lot of money that they can just spend as though COVID's not a thing. They would go to other teams that are similarly hamstrung by COVID finances, but who aren't, you know, your glittery top of the table, top five, top two sort of things. Um, so we kind of just forget that they also are probably having some trouble in the transfer market. Um, the issue with it is that I, how we've run really well over the past few years is we've not bought players bar the ridiculously good ones that we expect to come in and play immediately. And the further we put off our succession plan buys, the sooner those players will have to actually feature. Um, so why I was not overly stressed um, with us not buying this summer like I did want one or two more players than we got um, but I was not tearing my hair out by any means is because I never thought we were buying for this year anyway um, I don't think I think last season's ridiculous injury crisis makes us think that it makes a lot of sense to have an entire bench of players who could all start every game of the season and everyone would be happy um, and I don't think that's just ever going to come to pass but I do think if all of the planets aligned or what have you, um, we would have got a player in who maybe would have played 15 to 20 matches, um, probably not a lot of them starts. And a lot of all of the domestic cup games, um, any sort of dead rubber. So your Michelin's, if you will, um, mm. at the end of the group stage in the Champions League, that sort of thing, just to get a sense of the team. But it wouldn't we would never be relying on them this season. And a lot of the discussion around us not getting a transfer in was kind of suggesting that we would need to buy someone that we would be relying on that this season. And I don't think that's really how we do business at the moment because we have all of the lads that we're mainly relying on already. Um, I'm not entirely sure to what level the in injury crisis last season has changed that or if it would be the same regardless, but I have a hunch that just the, the constant chaos and stress and concern of last season and just not knowing who we were gonna play has in some ways impacted how people approach the transfer window over this past summer. Yeah, I think also how people look at depth is very interesting. Someone said to me at the weekend about how with Elliot getting injured, we now have no depth in midfield. And I was just looking at the pure numbers and there's basically like eight guys who cover three midfield positions. And that's like, it used to be like two per position. So that's like like almost three per position and you could even play Takamine Amino in midfield because that, that's kind of the role he played at Salzburg so like it's not ideal but it's there is the depth there and I think the, the issue is like um you have say for example Harvey Elliott 
and then you've got Kate and you've got Oxlade Chamberlain. And you kind of want between those three for them to cover one of the roles in midfield. And you worry that maybe like uh, two of them are injury prone, but now um, also Elliot's hurt, uh, damaged his ankle, but you couldn't really foresee that. Um, but, but ultimately you've, you, you've got three guys there for one position and you need to like move someone on, I guess, to replace one. And moving Cato on, like you were saying about that middle market, like if you were trying to sell Nabi Cato today, you're not going to get your value back. And uh, if you were going to try and replace him, then you're going to need to spend a lot of money while also trying to move on a player on high wages that you're not going to get your value back for. And you may end up, it might end up even need to cover most of his wages um, at another club. So it just doesn't really make any sense um, because you've got a potentially world-class player who's just ha had a lot of struggles with injuries. And it's a case of um, the physio department, the sports science department, the medical department um, saying like, do you think you can get him, do you think you can get 25 games a season out of him? Um, because a, a world-class player for 25 games a season would make a difference to us from last season. And like, yeah, we, 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 we believe in him. We have faith in him. But the fans just don't think like that. They don't have that information. And I guess that's ultimately my point, is that uh, as fans, we often don't have the information and fill in all the blanks. Like transfers, we get no information. And that's why the in-the-no market thrives, because they just make shit up um, and then make it vague. And they're, they're like... Uh, cold readers, I guess, or like psychics, where they, they throw out little bits of information to see if it sort of attaches on to anything that might be happening, and then try to meld the two into looking like they happened at the same time. Or um, and, and I guess that's what happens with, with Liverpool Football Club a lot of time. There's no information coming out. We're very good on making sure there's no leaks. And so it, people just fill in blanks. And if people are just naturally negative, you end up with lots of negativity filling those blanks. Um, and I guess that's what, what I feel like I'm seeing at the moment, just lots of unnecessary negativity. And I, I don't understand that either because I don't think like that. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot easier to be pessimistic. I think um, there is, everyone has a negativity bias on multiple different levels. Um, so you can talk about that from loads of different ways. Like um, players have talked about it in terms of online abuse and things like that, where it's like, people can say so many positive things, but very often it's the negative comments that stick with you. And um, that was, I think it was Luke Ayling in the um, the Leeds documentary on Amazon, I think. Mm -hmm. um, he said that, and that really struck a chord with me because it's like, yeah, I definitely remember in more detail the negative comments that have been said to me more than the positive comments. And that's just because we latch on to that sort of thing. Um, it's easier to talk about negative comments and like just in general it's easy to pick things apart and it's harder to be optimistic because you're worried that you're going to be proven wrong and then disappointed again I think I'm not entirely sure like I I am very much an optimistic I lean towards optimistic as a football fan in general um I used to live in California you cannot be a pessimistic fan and wake up at four in the morning like you you can't I have woken up at four in the morning and watched us lose to Crystal Palace and had my entire day ruined. And yeah. if I was a properly negative fan, I would just stop doing that. Um, but I, I prefer to just assume that people know what they're doing than assume the absolute worst. Um, I think we've had maybe one or two mistakes in the transfer market in recent years, which is a ridiculously good record. And even those mistakes might prove true. Um, as you say with Nabi Keita, I think if we're looking at how much we paid for him, um, he's an outlier and that we haven't perhaps got at all close to what the value would have suggested. But that also doubly means that selling him doesn't make sense because it's more of a loss than just keeping a, as you say, world-class player and having him play as much as we can. Um, it's worth noting that Klopp does like to play Nabiketa for big games if he's available. Um, so he obviously trusts him even if we as fans don't necessarily always feel the same way. Mm -hmm. um, and the other, I would say, mistake is probably um, Minamino, but not necessarily a mistake given his price tag, if that makes sense. I doubt that we will sell him for less than we bought him for. So it is what it is. Um, I really wanted him to do well because I really liked him against us. He was terrifying. Um, but I just, I don't know. I don't understand the negative outlooks, even when it comes to lineups coming out, you know, there's always mostly negativity when a lineup is released. 
which I don't understand. And then there's negativity about the players that we do have and positivity towards this sort of amorphous thing that may come in a player that we don't necessarily even know a name for, but we think they're better than everyone that we have somehow. Yeah. And I just, I don't really get that mindset at all. I don't understand how it works, frankly. Yeah, it, it's something I learned a, a long time ago in life is that um, uh, it's very, very hard to see the perspective of someone that you don't, you just can't understand their, like how they think about things. Um, it, it happens a lot in politics where you just end up with two very entrenched positions and there's never any middle ground because they don't share any common thoughts or beliefs and they end up not even talking about the same things. Um, and I, I feel like that's what I, I see in the Liverpool fan base. I, I also wonder to what extent banter is, is what defines how we see things on Twitter. So like in the transfer window, everything seems to be around banter. It's like um, my team signing this player and your team didn't. And, and that's the whole thing. And, and uh, the, the thing about negativity is, is mostly what I see, though. It's almost like people trying to guard themselves against banter. So it's like if I'm negative about my own team, then I can't be bantered about this because I've already said everything. So I either get to say, I told you so, or my team wins and I get to celebrate a win. So it's, it's almost like win-win for me. Um, I, I can't really lose. If I, if I shit on my own team and then they lose, then I've already said that. That's, I get to join in. I get to say, oh, look, I already knew this was going to happen. And I, I, I wonder to what extent that's what we see as well, because... Again, I literally don't understand how they think at all. I'm just trying to apply logic to what they do because it doesn't seem to make any sense. They seem to genuinely get no enjoyment from supporting their team or following their team. And, and this is a good time to follow Liverpool. And that's the thing. Like, if this was the Hodgson era, I would understand it because the Hodgson era was ridiculous. Like, everyone felt that. Um, but there just seems to be no sense of perspective. Like, this is literally the most successful era we have had probably since the 80s. And, and people just seem to not find any enjoyment in it. Um, even when we won the league, I saw, uh, I think it was Sean posting something along the lines of, um, I was right, we did progress because we did this, we got the same points last season, but we also won the Champions League. And you're like, How? And, and that we've just won the league and that's your, that's your thought. That's your thought. I don't understand that. And, that. and that's my problem, I guess, with how the Liverpool fan base is at the moment. They just don't seem to, get any enjoyment from from a thing that solely exists as like a, a distraction from real life I guess yeah I think everything you said there is spot on um in terms of like there is this sort of I don't want to be wrong on the internet thing so I don't want to predict hugely positive things and then end up both feeling a bit shit because we've lost and then also feeling embarrassed because I've been wrong in public um, but I think another element of it too is just the engagement thing, because there are a lot of people on particularly social media um, who thrive off getting the attention, right? And negative posts get more attention than positive posts, full stop. That's mm. um, in pretty much every arena. So um, we talked about it briefly before we started recording, but uh, they did a study in June of this year that said that positive social media posts um, generally don't get much interaction. Whereas if you do a negative one on the same topic, it gets twice as much. So double, um, wow. than a positive one. And so if you're looking, um, in politics, it's even more than in sport, but if you're looking at, uh, say two different things and you can put a negative spin on it, it'll get more interaction. And I think probably a little bit of people arguing with it too, um, so at that point, you have to realize that those of us who think that these negative posts are bad are also giving it these engagement numbers by quote tweeting or arguing with it or what have you. So you get the people who are pessimistic fans um, who do prefer to join on that train, but you also get others who want to kind of shut that out, but by engaging with it, they're actually boosting it. Um, so a little bit of both where like you're not, there's no real way out of it other than ignoring it, but even ignoring it won't necessarily make it go away because it still exists. Um, like I have so many of these hyper negative accounts, um, one of which I absolutely went into fitted, footed on over this weekend because I was <laughs> sick and just did not care in the morning. Um, but it's fine. Um, 
it's fine. Uh, but like I have them blocked, but they're still quote tweeted onto my timeline a lot. Yeah. Or related stuff are still quote tweeted onto my timeline a lot. So I still see it. There's no real way to, I don't think, be on Twitter in a community of Liverpool fans and follow Liverpool fans and not see that content just because of how that website works and how engagement with those accounts work. Um, so I'm not entirely sure what the answer is, um, but I do think it's probably less of a problem than we think it is because I do think a lot of that engagement comes from people arguing with it because that's another great thing about negative engagement is people are gonna argue. Um, I don't really have any answers to it other than just agreeing that it's awful, it should be stopped, People should stop quote tweeting them for the love of God. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't understand it at the end of the day. Yeah, and uh, I, I remember reading recently as well, there was, um, uh, so I saw a video recently, it was basically someone, a YouTuber explaining how to improve their, how they improve their numbers, I guess. And they were basically saying that the number one tip they can give is to push people's buttons, like piss people off. Uh, and that's the one way that you, you get much better numbers and the, and the reasons twofold. First of all, the people who support you will end up being like your little defenders and they'll, they'll back you up and, and they'll, they'll argue whatever cause that you're putting forward. But, and the second reason is, is that thing you said about um, people will quote tweet it and just to say, Jesus, look at the state of this guy. And then, uh, so loads of people just end up quote tweeting this and sharing it. And so they end up, you're just getting more engagement from that. Um, and, and it just becomes a cycle. But it's a, the thing that bothers me is that people are putting this out and it, in terms of advice, in terms of how to improve your social media content. And the advice is to produce shit content. And I'm just thinking, this is all this does is permeates the shit content we want less of. It, because no one gets enjoyment from it. Like, I, I think TalkSport's probably the best example. I, I, TalkSport I used to pay attention to, but it really bothers me now because... It just feels like they get people on to be controversial. Um, and, and I don't even think they believe what they're saying themselves because most of it's absurd. And it ends up just being like, they put it out as like a clickbait headline uh, with a video clip of like 50 seconds. And then if you read the comments, it's just like everyone bar the one club that it's on the pro side of said, this is shit. And I just, I don't understand. Again, it, it just feels like that damages your brand in the long run. Like, if your company name has any goodwill, any attached to its name, you just destroy it when you do that. And I see it with like ESPN as well. Um, I think it's ESPN FC. They did a lot with stats where they, they tweeted out that thing with Sol Bamba versus Van Dyke a few years back. And I, I replied with like my own statistics to show how ridiculous the ones they were using because it was just volume statistics for defenders. Um, and teams and smaller uh, players and smaller teams will always have bigger volume defensive statistics. So it's just like, it's just shit content. And again, it's ESPN. Like when I grew up, I always thought ESPN yeah. was almost like one of those pinnacle it's brands. literally just their Twitter. Yeah. And that's I the have thing. their Twitter block because they have so many good people working for it. Like Dale Johnson's yeah. vlog threads are amazing. Exactly. And, ESPN. and that's but the thing Twitter. I learned. Yeah, exactly. I, but I, was, I, I was following a guy and he was basically recruiting someone um, for ESPN and, and loads of the replies was, you need to sort out your Twitter content. And the guy replied saying, we, we have no input in that. There's like a people that deal with that and, and ESPN has no input into it. And I said, and I replied saying, you should change that then because people don't know that. They associate you with your Twitter content. Yeah. And so if your Twitter content shit, people think, well, ESPN's just gone down the drain. Um, and he never replied, but I, I hope he read it because it, it just bothers me. Like they, they have, just get such a bad feedback from it. Yeah, it's, it does read to me as though ESPN is trying to be a sort of American-based talk sport um, without the sort of bringing on actual people to be controversial, but in terms of taking stats or taking quotations um, out of context. Oh, yeah. um, they've done it to clock loads. Um, it's their favorite thing to do, loads of them, um, but ESPN has done it as well. Um, I haven't noticed it as much because they're the only actual thing that I have blocked. Um, <laughs> I just couldn't anymore. I couldn't cope. Um, but it, it is like they found that there's an opening in that part of the market, I would guess, for an online presence based in the United States. Um, 
I don't know why. I don't know who was in that meeting because there had to have been some sort of social media strategy meeting where I wouldn't be surprised if they had talk sport as an example in that meeting. Um, but it's, it is, it's really disappointing. Um, in that case, they're using a name of something that's reputable to engage in that sort of nonsense. Um, with a lot of these individuals that we talk about a lot who are trying to be sort of mouthpieces for fans, um, I'm, I'm not really sure what their end goal is. It, I'm not, I honestly don't know if they're using this for some sort of networking, if they hope to get a job out of it, I don't know. Um, I, frankly, I don't know how I have a number of followers on Twitter because I just yell into the void loads. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, quite frankly, since it goes absolutely against everything that we're talking about here, the most popular tweet I have done in a while was a positive tweet about Zibak Wow. So, you know what? Some, sometimes Twitter is not terrible. Like, I just was basically, I said something about, you know, because at Milan, before it was clear that he was even going to play well, so like in the early stages of that match, I heard chanting of Dibok Origi's name. Yeah. Um, and then again at Anfield, um, more chanting of Dibok Origi's name. And I said something about like, clearly the fans actually get it and they want the players to do well. Um, and so hearing that sung by so many people reminds me that actually Twitter isn't real life and it is just a toxic hellscape. Um, and a lot of people apparently agreed with that. So it, it does lead to the like the idea that so much of this negativity gets so platformed in part because there is this contingent who are negative fans and think that's a sort of normal way to approach this game, I guess. Um, but also because there are loads and loads of people who want to quote tweet it and say, take a load of this, this idiot sort of thing which is heartening, I guess, in its own way, but still doesn't solve the problem. Yeah, I, th I think the other thing as well, fr from my perspective, is when I was a kid, I learned it um, in high school about the importance of refuting uh, bad faith arguments or lies or anything like that. Basically, if an argument exists in the world and no one refutes it, then it kind of just gets allowed to stand. And so at the start, I would push back a lot against these, these accounts. But it, when you when you start doing that, you end up spending all of your time doing that. Um, and there's some people I follow on Twitter who do that. And um, I kind of admire them for it because they have a lot more persistence and patience than I do. But you kind of just run out of energy at some point. You basically just think, I'm just tired doing this. It's it's just such a, a waste of, of any energy and time that you have in your life to just go on Twitter and, and find an abundance of people being daft and having bad faith arguments. And then trying to refute them because it just it, you, you could just use your whole day doing it. it just seems like a, yeah. a bad use of your time um and, and i guess that leads nicely into the the other topic of today i guess which is trent alexander arnold <laughs> um and again this kind of i think this comes from another espn article i guess where we, where we brought it up together but it was an espn article basically saying uh trent alexander arnold fails at his primary task which is defending and i i just yeah uh Anything you want to say on the matter? Oh, I mean, I, I look at this in sort of a multifaceted way. Um, I think on one, if we're talking about bad faith arguments, I think there's a contingent of conversation around Trent Alexander-Arnold that is 100% um, just people knowing that if they write a bad faith argument about Trent Alexander-Arnold, they will be getting a lot of um, engagement on it. Um, and I don't mean that in terms of writing tweets, I do mean that in terms of legitimate articles because um, people do have engagement targets for the articles that they write. That's just yeah. a state of um, a lot of modern journalism. Um, not everywhere, I hasten to say, but in a lot of places, people do have targets for how many you know clicks, visits, that sort of thing. Um, so there's that. Um, I think there's an issue well, a twofold issue of analyzing Trent Alexander-Arnold as a classic defender, um, purely because we have, I think, as fans, analysts, etc., a lot of difficulty analyzing how things change as they're changing. Um, so if you're thinking about like Michael Cox's books, um, that's not Michael Cox, who am I thinking of? Um, 
I'll come back to it. Oh, yeah, it is Michael Cox. He did the he did the basically periodized version of like every year in the Premier League. This is sort of the system in play, what have you. And it's it's really nice to read and it's nice to look at. Um, but not many people are really good at doing those types of analyses in real time. Um, they can see it in the past. So you can, a big one, just in terms of managerial impact, if we talk about how when Arsene Wenger came in and started changing things in the league and the impact that had sort of thing. It's easy to see that in the back or looking back at it. But at the time, we need to remember that he was seen as kind of weird, right? Um, and so a little bit of the issues having trouble seeing Trent as something different than we necessarily are used to seeing in that position as it reads on a team sheet. Um, and also tied in with that, having trouble analyzing Trent as part of a tactical system rather than as an individual player. So there's a tendency to not analyze what the entire team is doing around Trent's movement and just to analyze Trent's movement. And then finally, there's a real tendency to talk about Trent as though he hasn't improved as a defender at all since when he first came into the team, um, when he wasn't great at, as a defender, right? And uh, like Klopp rotated him out when Manchester City came in, um, put Joe Gomez out there. And that was, I think, October-ish, 2018. Um, Trent did not start. He had just had a run of starts in that role. He was not injured, um, but Klopp knew they would exploit that area. And so put Joe Gomez there instead. And I think all of those things work together. So the need for engagement um, are just kind of difficulty with analyzing things that are different than what we might expect and analyzing them as a whole, and then sort of failing to move out of narratives that existed in the past and may have been even more true than they are now, um, failing to see how that may have changed as we move forward. Yeah. And I, I say a lot on Twitter that, that people need to think about football in terms of rules rather than positions, because I think in a lot of people's heads, they have a position locked into their head in terms of what players in that position must do. So like the, the, the center forward, the striker must score goals. And the fullback must be good and one v one defending and et cetera, et cetera. And people get this locked into their brain. Whereas in reality, it when you can when you build a football team, you need to have certain ingredients on the pitch, and those need to fill uh, all the specific roles that you have. And so, if you don't have a, a fullback that's good at crossing the ball, then getting him into positions to cross the ball doesn't make any sense. So instead, you just have him hang back and have maybe one of the forwards stay wider to cross the ball. And, and that's how you end up building a football team. So like whenever you looked at um, Risu Sari's Napoli, um, he used to do this where uh, his one of his fullbacks was Hassaj, who was a great defender, but he wasn't that great going forward. And he barely crossed the halfway line. He ended up playing as almost like a third centre back whenever they went forward. Um, and they had Jorginho in midfield, who wasn't that great at sort of screening the back four. So because they had three center backs, that meant that they didn't need to have the number six protecting the space between the split center backs. So Jorginho could play a little bit higher as basically receiving and recycling the ball when attacks broke down. They had uh, Callahan on the right as a winger, and he stayed very wide to get the ball into the box. But on the left, they had a fullback in that job. Um, I think it was Gulam. Um, and then they also had Insignia who came inside. So the right forward and the left forward, one of them came in and one of them went out. And then the fullbacks, one of them stayed back, one of them went up. Um, the number six didn't play like a number six. He played more like an eight. And, and that's the thing. These are roles. It, it's, they're not stuck to their position. Um, they, they play a different role. And then if they move to another team, they don't necessarily do the same role. Um, and I think that's what people miss because a lot of comparison we see on, on football is basically comparing players in terms of positions, but they very rarely have the same role. If you're comparing Firmino to pretty much any other number nine, that usually a number nine's primary job is scoring goals, but but his isn't. He the goal scorers for Liverpool are the two wide forwards. They're attacking the space that the nine is dropping out of, um, and it, he can't be doing both things at once. He can't be uh, the primary goal scorer and also vacating the main areas to score goals, so that your primary goal scorers can arrive in them late. And and I think that's a, a problem with how people look at teams because they they expect the players to fill the role in terms of how they understand football. But if Klopp is doing something different, their attitude seems to be that that needs to change, even though it's clearly working and brings success. And Liverpool are like as, as a successful club team as anyone in football at the moment. 
but they still think he's doing it wrong and they need to change it. He needs a proper number nine. He needs a fullback that knows how to defend. He needs a blah, blah, blah. Uh, and I, I never understand that. It's like, um, and, and I, I got the argument again with Southgate where it was a case of Southgate doesn't pick him. I think he knows more about football than you do. And you're like, well, Klopp does pick him. And I would say Klopp knows more about football than Southgate. So if you want to go down the bad faith argument point of view, surely that, that, that's how you would arrive at your conclusion that Klopp picks him and rates him as the best right back uh, in the world and is successful. Yeah, and I think another way that might be helpful to think about it in terms of roles rather than just positions is if you more are looking at just spaces on the pitch. So um, particularly if you're in the ground, because um, viewing it on television, you can't quite see it the same. Um, but in terms of how the structure works, um, so if Trent's dead, dead high up on the pitch, right? Um, it might actually just not be his job to mm. come back and cover if we lose the ball there. And that's how you see on both sides of the pitch. So not just Trent, it happens on Robertson's side as well. Um, it's that gaps are filled rather than that certain players who have fullback next to them fill those gaps. Um, so I was paying attention to this because it's been bothering me. Um, and there's actually a really, really good example um, in the Milan game. So between about 55 minutes and 59 minutes, both Shota and Salah are covering for the fullbacks at different moments. Like it's different Milan attacks, but it exemplifies exactly what we're both talking about here. And it's not that Robertson and Trent are out of position for their role. It's that they're not covering that role at that moment in how we're attacking. And it, last season, you would very often see Henderson kind of roll over into that Trent side because we knew that side was going to get targeted because, you know, Virgil goes over in the other. But um, thinking about how gaps are filled is an interesting way to figure out if someone is playing a good match for Klopp's Liverpool rather than thinking about who is actually doing the defending in the moment. And I also thought Klopp's comments um, after that Milan game were really interesting because very often uh, like we were talking a bit about Trent being caught out on at least one of the goals. Right. Um, but Klopp very specifically was talking about gaps in the midfield and the line being the issue that he fixed at halftime. And I went back and watched it. And actually um, for that first goal, Trent is a bit behind his player. So he's wrong as well, but the line is messed up. So mm -hmm. Gomez is a bit deep um, playing the player on side, the rest of the line, is about two yards back and the ball getting through so easily speaks to midfield gaps as well. And it's interesting to me that Klopp isn't talking about that Trent thing that everyone else was talking about because the, the Milan game is sort of where the topic of this podcast came from. He had no discussion of that. He's talking about the other issues that didn't work in the system rather than just that one. Uh, and it's it's really interesting to me because we just we as fans very often are unable to talk about that sort of thing because we see what we expect to see rather than engaging with what might actually be going on. Yeah. Um, and I do very much think it's a lot harder to do on television because you're only seeing little snapshots of the pitch rather than the whole one. Um, and you can see the shape a lot better when you can see the whole pitch. That's why they usually use that. But it's worth thinking about in terms of how how the gaps come into and out of play in different positions. Yeah, it, it, it's a recurring thing I see with Trent is basically he's out of position. Um, and I was thinking that if a player was out of position that much, then either uh, they're actually in the right position and that's why they're constantly in the same positions or they're constantly in the wrong position and the manager would do something about it. But the fact that he hasn't, would make me revert to the former answer where he's in the right positions and that's fine. And I think it ultimately comes down to the, the thing I was saying about um, in defense, you have two fundamental tasks that you're trying to do. You're either trying to limit the space of the opposition or you're trying to limit their time on the ball. And we are very much the former. In fact, we're probably the most aggressive of being the former, uh, uh, sorry, of the latter. Uh, we're trying to limit time on the ball. Um, we give up space all the time. We, we allow, we play the highest line we can play, but we can do that if we limit time on the ball. Um, and that's how you affect um, our defensive strategy is if you stop the opponent having the time to receive the ball, get their head up and pick out a pass, then it can be effective. And if you look at the goal uh, Real Madrid scored against us, it was Tony Cruz 
um, who received the ball in front of our midfield, no time, no pressure on the ball. He had time to pick his head up and pick out a runner, and it was it was so easy. Um, and you see goals like that against us at times, and Jurgen Klopp hates it, and he sort of mentions it. When he does, he mentions about our midfield, and he done it again with Milan. I, I noticed in the Milan one that basically a guy's picking the ball up uh, right in front of Henderson, um, and Henderson doesn't put any pressure on him. Um, and the guy takes uh, like four or five touches, comes in on his right foot, and then picks out a pass into the space between our defence and our midfield, because we leave spaces all the time. Um, and people tend to focus on those spaces because they see that easier. They see the big space and think, oh, we need to be shutting that space. But we, you can't really shut that space and limit time on the ball. So everyone's geared up towards pressing up to compress the space on the person who's going to receive the ball in front of your defence. And if you do that, you, you end up creating big spaces behind or big spaces between your lines. Um, and that's not the problem, because if we try to solve that problem, we can't put pressure on the ball. And if we can't put pressure on the ball, then we're kind of dead because it, it just kills our whole system, which is based upon that premise. Um, and I think that's the thing people miss with Trent Alexander-Arnold uh, and also with Robertson is they're part of the counter press. So as soon as we lose the ball, they're pressing up. They're not going backwards. They're going forwards. Um, they're trying to stop the easy balls out to the fullbacks who then can play a ball from wide at a good angle over your defense. And that's, that's what they're trying to do. You can't also do that and also get back to get in front of the winger. Um, and that's why they're constantly out of position because it's, it's part of our system. Our system is trying to prevent time on the ball for people who'll play the ball over the defense rather than the whole team trying to drop back and fill that space, which probably isn't possible. You just get picked off on the run. Um, and I think a lot of people just miss that. And I don't understand why. It's just like, it's one of those basic principles of football. Um, is you're either limiting time on the ball or space. And, and if you aren't identifying that, you kind of lose your whole argument with me. And that, that was the whole point of the ESPN piece, that it just lost its argument on me in the initial start because it was like, well, he doesn't even understand that premise. So how much does he understand about the argument? And, and that's, that's kind of my problem with it. Yeah, and as, as something of an aside, but also I think illustrative, um, if you explain to someone who thinks that space is a major issue for us, the way we play, um, just with our extremely high line, we are very aggressive. We do throw a lot of players forward, right? If you tell them that, and then also say, they also never really tactically foul, um, yeah. really low in terms of tactical fouling, that's not what someone would expect, right? Because if you're trying to limit the space, if you see a player running into space, you take them out so the team can regroup, right? And we don't do that. We have an entirely different thing in play. So even if all of those things pass by, if they get out of our press and they go down, right? We're not stopping them. We're still seeding the space in a really interesting way um, because we back the fellows that we brought in at the back to be able to do their job as well. Um, but that is sort of the easiest way for me to understand that the system is probably not what you would expect if you're looking at it as a, that's a very dangerous zone. We don't want anyone to go in that zone or even attack that zone ever. Um, and players aren't covering that zone, so they must be out of position. Um, if that were true, we would probably have a lot more tactical fouls because they sure do try to attack that space a lot. Yeah. And, and it's that thing, I think ultimately it's basically just that thing of risk versus reward. Like the way we play is the highest risk. Uh, we're, we're trying to always compress the opponent as high in the, up the pitch as they can so that they just can't get out with the ball. And you, and you see that at times, there, there can be spells of like 20 minutes in a game where the opponent literally just can't touch a ball against us. And that's just ridiculously high level football. Um, and that is only possible because we compress all of the team into that space in their like almost their third of the pitch, I guess. Um, and as soon as they get the ball and try to play out, we are, we just ambush them and get it straight back. And, and they can only ever get like one or two touches at a time. Um, and there's all of this oceans of space behind our center backs who are like midway in the opponent's half. And they can't do anything about it because they can't get the ball and they can't receive it and turn and get their heads up and play a pass. Um, and I think that's the thing. And I always think English football is very risk averse um, and, and you sort of see that in the way the uh, English media talk about Trent Alexander-Arnold. It's like um, you've basically got this guy who's redefining playing right back uh, at the moment and he's clearly the best in the world 
at his position. He wins all those accolades uh, for that. He's in the Ballon d'Or voting, um, which is unheard of almost for a right back. And, and yet you have these people saying that uh, Aaron Wambasaka or uh, Kieran Trippier would be better for England at right back than Trent Alexander-Arnold. And it just it just doesn't make sense to me. It's, it's a very risk-averse approach. And then you have Gar Southgate, who, again, is a very risk-averse manager. If you go and watch his Middlesbrough team play in the Premier League, it was all about containment. And if you want containment, you go with the guy who's not going to get put ahead of the ball, who's not going to try and overlap a winger. You're going to get the guy who just sits in his own half, barely crosses a halfway line, and there's, there's no risk involved. Um, and that just seems a shame because... That's the beauty of, of the game is, is taking those risks and it paying off. And that's ultimately what leads to success. The teams that take those big risks and the payoff tend to win. Um, and I guess that's the sad thing with the whole Trent Alexander-Arnold argument. Yeah, what I will say is, um, I'm partially because I, I don't care about England, that probably plays into it a little bit, is that it's possible for Trent Alexander-Arnold to be the best in his position, but not to be the best in his position for a Gareth Southgate team. Um, so I think Grace Robertson put it really well in the lead up to the Euros of like, just not really mad about this because he probably wouldn't use him right anyway. Um, you should take him because you don't leave a player at home. If it's, if he's a game changing player, like that's just a bit daft. Um, but I think that can be true. What does bother me a bit about the whole Trent narrative, um, outside of Liverpool. So it doesn't really happen within our fan base at all but outside of liverpool there's this whole idea that he is purely a weak defender um and look he does make defensive mistakes sometimes he's can get caught out of position sometimes he's often not all that great 1v1 um standing someone up not running next to them sort of thing but like he also never seems to get credit for when he does do good pieces of defending is what bothers me so there are plenty of games where he is a difference maker, particularly because there is that much space there. Every once in a while, he is the last man over there and he does it really well, but we never really talk about his defending, particularly because he very often is attacking very well as well. But then you get other defenders where they'll have the sort of reputation for being a very solid defender in a way that Trent doesn't have that reputation. But at the same time, we don't talk about their defensive errors or frailties they just get to be the solid defender who's maybe not as good at an attack. Whereas Trent gets to be very, very good in attack, but he is necessarily weak in defense. And we never really challenge that with things that happen. Um, so purely because of the, the England connection and also events at the weekend, Kyle Walker gives up a lot of penalties for a player in his position, but it's very rarely talked about as an issue with his game. Um, it, it just, that part of things bother me. Like, I fully believe that it's possible that Trent would not be utilized very well by Gareth Southgate, but that's more of a let's talk about Gareth Southgate position. Sure. Um, and that's a, a larger conversation about, you know, England as a national team, what they can and can't achieve with this style of play, which I've heard multiple very good positions on both sides of things. I tend to be on the side in terms of international football where you, you need to build the best team for the style of play that the manager is going to play, even if it means leaving your biggest stars out. Um, I also am absolutely gutted for Trent if he doesn't get picked for things, because I know that's very important for players and it is absolutely daft that he is snubbed in the way he is given how good he is. Mm -hmm. um, but it's sound if he's not playing and not getting injured for my own personal interests. Um, but at the same time, we do need to avoid all of these false narratives about him as a player, because that's just not on. Yeah, I, I mean, in international football as well, it has to be said that you've got very little time to coach a team. Um, you certainly don't have the time you would need to coach a team the way Klopp or um, Pep Guardiola or uh, any any of those sort of elite coaches. That they, they don't really have that time on the training pitches to build those sort of attacking systems, um, and you very much end up relying on individual quality um, a lot in international football, and you end up relying a lot on things that people pick up from club football that can transfer in the international football. So like Gary Neville and Beckham working well for England. So you try to transfer that the international football. Um, and so I think a, a lot of that happens. And also pragmatism sort of wins the day, I guess, a lot in knockout tournaments, whereby 
if you set out not to lose, it's better than setting out to win and then getting knocked out of a competition. We see that with Man City in Europe. Um, in the league, it's fine to set out to try and batter every team. But when you take that approach into Europe uh, and you get a goal behind against a team like Leon, that's it, you're out of the competition. And, and we've sort of seen that a few times with, with Man City in the, the past sort of four or five seasons. They end up getting knocked out from a team that gets ahead in the tie. And then Man City just can't get away back into it. Um, and that's the problem with knockout football, I guess, and that approach. So I, I understand the pragmatism sort of suits um, Gar Southgate very well. Um, he probably doesn't have the time to coach the team to do better. I honestly don't think he could either. I don't think he's just that, not that good of a coach. But that's another argument, as you said. Um, so the, the whole thing with Trent being a bad defender bothers me because I remember someone posted up some statistics that show, I think it's from Statsbomb, showing that in terms of 1v1 defending, he came out top or near top among right backs last year. Uh, he was ahead of Aaron Wambasaka, Kyle Walker, Reese James, in terms of basically being approached 1v1 in defending and, and winning the ball more often than, than the other right backs in the Premier League. And again, it's that thing of, I, I think it's just confirmation bias. If you can find a clip of Trent Alexander-Arnold getting beat with the ball, you've proved he's a bad defender. But if you find a clip of Aaron Wan-Bissaka getting beat with the ball, that's a rare clip of Alexander, uh, Trent, uh, Reece, yeah. sorry, Aaron Wan-Bissaka getting beat. So it's, it's kind of like just re reconfirming the narrative in your own head. If you can prove it's true, it's like, well, that must be a rare clip. And if you can prove it with Trent Alexander, it's like you say, told you he's a bad defender. And I also think Trent Alexander-Arnold, I rarely see him get beat on the back post with crosses. Mm -hmm. um, he never seems to lose his man. And I see that happening a lot with like other right backs all the time. And I just think that's, again, one of his big strengths as a right back. He, he just seems to always keep in, in, in mind where the guy is on the back post and doesn't let him uh, win the ball on crosses. Um, but again, it just you're never going to see him get credit for it because he's a bad defender. Why would anyone want to give credit to a bad defender? They would have just set themselves up to fail. And, and so I think that's a lot of what I see. Yeah. I also think just our defense being so unsettled last season didn't do him any favors. Because uh, he just, he frankly wasn't as good as he necessarily would have been otherwise last season. And I think, I think he had COVID as well. He did. Um, and just playing the number of games, right? Um, just the, the level of no real, the relentless march of games really um, not going to do anyone any favor. So he's, he's meant to be this attacking output for Liverpool um, and being attacking is always going to be harder than sort of being organized and reactive. Um, so if he were a more defensive player, it might've been a bit easier for him, mm -hmm. um, but summoning creativity and being very on every game, after having COVID with a very unsettled midfield and defense next to you um, and doing that like every three days or so um, is a massive challenge. And that's another one of the things where you're, you're analyzing a single player's performance outside of the system in a way that I don't think is necessarily helpful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the, the other thing I would say is um, I mentioned this before on, on Twitter, but um, I think there's a very big gap between high uh, Brazilian football sees fullbacks and high English football sees fullbacks. So like in Brazil, we call them lateral, which means width. That's all the word means. It just means width. And their job is just to dominate the whole flank. But that's never really been a thing in English football. Your fullback is your fullback all the way back, fully back. And um, I think that's just the word in itself defines how each culture probably thinks of their fullbacks. Um, and so you had the same thing with Roberto Carlos, where you had him famously clashing with Hodgson at Inter Milan, where Inter Milan, uh, sorry, Hodgson saying to him, you're not a fullback, uh, you'll never make it as a fullback. And Roberto Carlos saying to Hodgson, you don't understand football, because in a sense, they're, they're sort of both right. And in, in Hodgson's mind, what Roberto Carlos needs to be doing as a fullback, he isn't doing. And in Carlos's mind, he's the only guy that could dominate the whole flank in the way that he needed to for Brazil and Inter Milan. Um, and because Hodgson doesn't want someone to dominate a whole flank, like we saw it at Liverpool. When, when Roy Hodgson was in charge of Liverpool, we had Glenn Johnson tucked into our six-yard box yeah. in open play, and we had the winger out dealing with the, the opposition's winger and fullback, 2v1. And, and Glenn Johnson was basically just protecting the near post, and you're just thinking, that's ridiculous. Under, under Rafa, he was like the best attacking right back in the league, and now he's protecting the near post. And it went for crosses on the other side, he's like tucked in. It's like a center back. It's ridiculous. Um, and that's the thing is the two coaches are seeing things entirely differently. 
And, and that's how basically someone can see Trent Alexander-Arnold and think he doesn't play like a fullback. Whereas Jurgen Klopp sees Trent Alexander-Arnold and sees someone who can dominate a whole flank. Uh, he can pin the opposition player back on the other, on one side. Um, he can be like his most creative, penetrative player. He can progress the ball up the pitch and he does a good job going the other way. It's almost like two players in one. You've basically got an average uh, defensive fullback and a world-class winger all in one. Uh, and yet he still gets criticism for it, for like the little bits that he isn't doing, which are like hyper-focused on. Also in terms of finding it hard to believe or finding it easier to believe the negatives as well. I think it's a lot easier for people to disbelieve that a 22 year old soon to be 23 year old is frankly as good as he is. Yeah. So there's thought to be something wrong. Um, and so you're looking for that thing rather than just trying to evaluate him on his own terms within the entirety of the system and the role that he's playing. So kind of to bring absolutely everything we've discussed together, um, all of these impetuses end up making Alexander Arnold very, very challenged as a player outside of sort of Liverpool. Um, and you know he's that good, though, because even the negative idiots within the Liverpool online fan base generally don't have anything negative to say about Trent Alexander-Arnold. <laughs> True. <laughs> That's a very good way to look at it. <laughs> So uh, I think we've basically covered everything about Trent Alexander. To, to wrap it up, I'd like to, uh, for you to nominate something to go into Room 101. Yeah, and I've gone back and forth over, over today thinking about the thing because I wanted to do a Liverpool defensive related, but I think I'm going to stick to my one of the, especially to keep it short, because I am aware that we've been speaking for quite some time at this point. Um, <laughs> but the, the idea that you can't celebrate against a team that you've played for, I will give you a pass if you've played for that team for most of your career. So like, if if Milner really doesn't want to celebrate against Leeds who gave him a start or whatever that sound, but Jesse Lingard refusing to celebrate against his lone club at the weekend after scoring a quite important goal for his team is just frankly ridiculous. Yeah, it's a winning goal. And it's, yeah. it's, it's also from a personal point of view, it was like a redemption thing. So like yeah. in midweek, he's at fault for their goal that gets them the defeat in Europe against young boys. Uh, yeah. And then he scores the winning goal at the weekend. It's a big chance for redemption just to stand in front of the fans and, and bask in, in the glory once again after getting criticism all week. And instead he, he didn't want to, didn't understand. Exactly. And it also, for me, just because such a large part of what I get out of watching this game is just pure joy in the game. Yeah. It really bothers me when it seems very easy for players to just avoid that. So you can do something like this and not get wrapped up in the joy of it. I don't like that as a thing. Yeah. I, I, I kind of love watching players celebrate goals. It's, it's kind of one of the reasons I love Firmino so much is seeing how he celebrates goals. And it's the same yeah. for Sadio Mane as well. And Salah, like, taking his shirt off and going wild at the weekend. It, and Alisson celebrating that header was yeah. just all these moments. It, the celebration is part of the moment for me. And so, like, I understand if, for, for example, if Steven Gerrard was to join Chelsea, yeah. God forbid, but Jesus. But if he joined Chelsea, right, and then he scored against Liverpool and he didn't want to celebrate, I kind of get that. That's the team you've supported all your life. You came through the yeah. youth system. I get that, but I, I don't like Luis Suarez uh, celebrating against us. I didn't really care. Um, yeah, he can celebrate against us. That's fine. What's like? He isn't born here. Like I understand he played here for like three years, four years, and he enjoyed his time here. But like he's Barcelona now. Like if he wants to celebrate a goal, let him. Um, but yeah, it would hit different if it was like my, Michael Owen. Michael Owen's definitely yeah. the type that would celebrate against Liverpool. <laughs> yeah. And God, you would hear it. You would, you'd feel so angry about it. But yeah, I, I totally get it. I, I get it, yeah. yeah. I mean, there are definitely differences, right? So like, I would be sound if I were Chelsea um, with John Terry celebrating or not at the end of his career, but I would go into a different club and celebrating uh, if he happened to score. But like, I would understand in that situation why he might not because he spent most of his career in one place. And this move is clearly just so he can get a bit more playing years out. Like there's no one there who thinks, wow, he's going to be very dedicated to the badge sort of thing. Um, 
and the opposite side of things was Suarez. You never really felt like he was ours in a way, like we were always sort of a stepping stone for him. Yeah. Uh, as awful as it Barcelona. is to say, but like, yeah, it, it was always that. And at that time, um, I'm not a huge fan of Luis Suarez, the man necessarily, but at that time, that sort of outset towards Liverpool made a bit of sense because we frankly weren't very good. We had a few very good individuals, but as a team, yeah, fair. Um, and so him celebrating didn't really bother me. Um, helps, like I said, that I don't even really like him all that much. Incredible <laughs> footballer, but not not great in my opinion as a man. Um, but like Lingard not celebrating a winning goal is just the most ridiculous thing that I have seen in some time. Um, celebrations are just so important. Small shout out, because I was listening to uh, Football Clichés, um, the athletic podcast a while ago. And one of the things they brought up as a joy of football Mm -hmm. is players who just don't expect to score so clearly have no idea how to celebrate <laughs> spot on uh, yeah. and, and just taking the celebration out of it i don't like just the idea that you can so easily it has to go i i, I wish i could remember his name but i saw earlier in the season there was a player and i think it was the championship or league one and he was one of those players who was forced out of a club uh they wouldn't let him train with the first team uh, he fell out with the manager and then he left and he joined another team and then he scored against that team and he went over and celebrated right in front of the manager like the yeah. most shit yeah. celebration he could do and it's it went viral on Twitter it was one of my favorite moments of the season is just seeing his yeah. face when he scored he was like oh my god I get to celebrate in front of this guy he was you could just tell it was like a big thing to him and, and yeah um, <laughs> he didn't care it was his former team at all he was like nah they they treated me like shit i'm over there um so yeah i totally agree um but yeah it doesn't come down to us i guess we'll have to put it to a vote but it's a good choice thank you and uh thanks for joining me it was great to talk to you about everything and um, i'll have to have you on again to talk about all things liverpool as the season progresses yeah next thing that we get angry about <laughs> yeah well it won't take too long i guess i'll speak to you tomorrow <laughs> yeah fair enough <laughs> lovely to speak to you today though okay good to speak to you bye take care Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Stats podcast. And a special thanks to our Patreon, without whom none of this would be possible. Next to join Stephen on the Stats podcast will be Sebastian Crankshaw, a full-time teacher, sometime football writer, and occasional scribe on rock. You can find him at his big his red on Twitter. Follow us at Crackstats to be notified as soon as new episodes drop. We hope to see you then.